0: Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 193 of the Chills of Will podcast. If you like what you've heard in the previous 192 episodes or this episode today, please share the Chills of Will podcast with a friend. Please share, please retweet, please subscribe. As a DIY independent podcaster who does it all, one man band, I really appreciate your support. It's been a pleasure to be able to speak to talented creatives like Ethan. Here's a bit about Ethan Chitanyé, today's guest. Ethan Chitanyé is the author of Singer Distance, a novel published by Tin House Books in October 2022, and of Warnings from the Future, a story collection from Acre Books in 2018. His short fiction has appeared in a variety of literary journals, including the Kenyon Review Online, Georgia Review, New England Review, Story, Five Points, Michigan Quarterly Review, and the Cincinnati Review. His stories have won a Pushcart Prize and have been listed as notable in the Best American Short Stories and the Million Writers Award. He is a graduate of Fresno State, where he won the Larry Levis Prize in Poetry, and of Emerson College, where he earned an MA in Publishing and Writing. He lives in Fresno, California with his family. Enjoy this episode. Such a pleasure today to be joined on episode 192 by Ethan Kachanye. I think I messed it up this time. Did I say it right? uh you
1: i think you said catania it was
0: chatania yeah Chatanye. it's a pleasure to talk to you um we've been you know talking for a while i've been a fan of of you uh, you're a great twitter follow a <laughs> great social media follow with some of the dry humor and such and uh had the pleasure to read the singer distance that's going to be the the main focus of our conversation but um you know official welcome and to a fellow california how are you doing tonight
1: i'm doing well and thank you so much for having me on it it's great to be joining the pod
0: oh man such a pleasure um I'd love to know you you were talking about before we were recording growing up in kind of the Bay Area, East Bay. I love to know about your relationship with language, what you were reading and or writing, um, you know, from in those early days.
1: Yeah, I grew up in in Concord, which is kinda of like the far side of the East Bay, you know, it's east mm-hmm. of the Caldecott Tunnel. So it's not like Oakland and Berkeley where it's really core Bay Area. Some people yeah, yeah, would yeah. would say that's probably too far out on the fringes to be the bay area um so it didn't feel like super metropolitan or anything like that um and um i mean i think i just mostly felt like a pretty normal suburban Mm
0: -hmm.
1: suburban wasteland type place growing up um reading i kind of i think i i was kind of in and out of being a serious reader. Like I wasn't one of those kids who like always had a book in his hand all the time Mm -hmm. from being a kid. I think I had some like fallow periods and then I'd find something that would, would start up a new interest. Like I'd get into a new author. Um, like I remember reading as a kid, going to the library, getting, getting picture books and short chapter books and stuff. Um, and then I remember like middle school, I got like a John Saul book from a um, like a scholastic book fair or something. And that got me into this John Saul phase. And, Mm. um, and he's, you know, he has had a bunch of books out that were kind of like, I guess, light horror kind of, I feel like, you know, maybe Stephen King light almost. Mm. Um, And so I, I read a bunch of those. And then I don't remember reading a bunch of other stuff. I read, um, you know, I read in middle school a lot was like Dungeons and Dragons books, oh, yeah. like the the fantasy novelizations, uh, Forgotten Realms type stuff. So that mm. that kept me going for a while. Um, and then at early high school, I think my freshman year, we had like silent reading time in class, so you have to read for twenty five minutes. Yeah. Um, and one of my teachers had a library, and I picked up a John Grisham book from that, and I okay. I like John John Grisham. I think it was I think it was The Client. Um, and so then I read a bunch of John Grisham books and then I probably went out of kind of reading heavily actively on my own. Um, and I think it was probably junior or senior year where I started to get a little more literary and want mm-hmm. to read stuff on my own and probably in kind of a a pretentious sort of way where I was like, mm-hmm. I'm going to be a literary guy um, and and started kind of picking up some stuff. I remember I started trying to read like, Shakespeare plays on my own and stuff.
0: Yeah. <laughs> How long did that last?
1: Um, yeah. probably like two plays. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I oh, think awesome. I probably That's read two that. and, and then learned, stopped reading them on my own for a while.
0: <laughs> well, shoot, the name John Saul brings back memories. I don't know that I ever read a John Saul, but like I think my brother was into like Dean Koontz. Yeah. Yeah. Which I thought was kind of like just the name itself was a little forbidding. But for some reason the name John Saul was so forbidding to me. It was just like, <laughs> dang, you know, it's just dark.
1: Yeah, it sounds it has kind of a dark and serious ring to it. And yeah. I wasn't like a a horror reader, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Mostly, I I just kind of found my way to the book and then followed the author. But it's yeah. interesting that it didn't like branch off because I didn't start reading Dean Koontz after that or mm-hmm. Stephen King after that. Sure. I just kind of like I'd find an author and then stick with them.
0: Yeah, yeah. So you were talking about again before recording about like the wrestling career, like even taking you to college like looking to, you know, looking to find a good uh, college wrestling program. Like, so was this like a matter of you being like a jock and like, you know, bro, we don't read or (laughs) like, were you like, would you call yourself like a jock? I mean, wrestling, you know, is obviously not the most popular like spectator sport, but man, it is tough, right?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's really challenging. I think it's one of the most intensive sports you can be. And maybe that's, that's, you know, wrestler chauvinism talking that I, I still have left over but, um. But it, it's pretty demanding. It's taxing. You know, your wrestling matches six minutes long, mm. and that six minutes of wrestling can feel like, you know, two hours on the yeah. court. You know, yeah. it, it it'll take it out of you.
0: Right. Well, yeah. So how did you, how did the the transform not the transformation, but like how did um you go from being you know so focused on wrestling and being a, you know being a reader, but all of a sudden to, you know, uh, sounds like you really got into the creative writing um, in college. And I'm not sure what, you know, grad school and all that too, but kind of where was the, where were these Eureka moments if they were that, um, salient?
1: I mean, I think I was always kind of desperate for something I could like be good at and stand out in and mm. wrestling. I was, you know, I, I was a pretty quick study in wrestling. i was also small. You know, I've always been the smallest kid in, in my classes in high school, mm. and that kind of thing. And, um, and high schools are usually kind of desperate for small kids to be in the lowest weight class. And, um, you can sometimes you like sneak onto the varsity squad early because you need a 103 pounder and there's no juniors or seniors who are small enough. So, uh, you can get on varsity as like a, a sophomore. And so that, that was exciting to me. I was looking for like a sneaky way in, and then writing that kind of picked up my, my junior year of high school when, um, I started trying to like write song lyrics and some basic poetry and stuff. And I had a teacher that year, an English teacher who was really good. Mm. And she she, like read one of my creative writing assignments aloud to the class. And she's like, I'm pretty sure this kid's going to be a writer. Mm. Um, And for some reason that sucked with me, I guess, you know, just (laughs) a hint of praise. I'm like, I'm going that direction.
0: Yeah. Wow. So are we talking like, I mean, you know, I know writers are famously self-deprecating. Like, were your song lyrics like fire? Are we talking like... Leonard Cohen, like Tori Amos, who we talk about. Uh, I don't know.
1: I don't know. I I don't think I've saved any of them. I can only presume that they okay. were extremely bad. Um, it's
0: like,
1: <laughs> and it I like... I I didn't have any musical talent. I I wasn't like in a band uh, or about to be in a band. Okay. Um, but I think I just wanted. I think I was looking for something that would impress girls, and that's yeah. <laughs> that's not not really the best way to do that. But. Uh, for some reason for that, I guess I chose, chose the hard way. <laughs>
0: yeah. So tell me about, uh, about Fresno state. You talked about some of the great mentors you had there. Um, just even just that, that story you were telling about the the teacher gave you those words of encouragement. I'm, I was thinking of one Felipe Herrera.
1: Oh yeah. He's great. He's incredible. He's, right. Yeah. But he, and but he always he, talks
0: about being so young, like second, third grade. And one of the teachers was just like, you have such a great voice, you know, reading his yeah. work out loud and that catapulted him to this day. Sorry to cut you off. What were you going to say? I was just
1: going to say I, that was one of the really cool things about coming to Fresno state, which I, I didn't choose for the writing program <laughs> at all. I chose cause I thought I was going to walk onto the wrestling team and they had a great history on the wrestling team. Yeah. And then it got canceled. I think my sophomore year um, and I didn't end up walking on anyway, but, um, but yeah, one Felipe Herrera, he wasn't, I don't think he was as like famous then like it was yeah. before he was um, the national poet laureate two right. years in a row and stuff. Um, but he was like a guy who'd come around campus and do presentations. Mm-hmm. And like, if you've ever been in a room and heard him speak, it's just like incredible energy. And we yes, think of like yes. literary readings as often like kind of quiet and dry right. things, but he's like a, a, a ringleader in there where he's just mm. like making everybody laugh, making everybody smile. There um, is. and so you, you have some of those presences around Fresno, um, mm. And then in the writing program, I got in and I started um, as an undergrad taking creative writing workshops, um, first with with Liza Wheeland, who was a great writer and mentor to me, and also with Steve Yarbrough. They were the two Mm -hmm. fiction professors at the time. Um, And they were both excellent and have done a lot of great teaching and brought up a lot of great writers. And so I left undergrad, I, I don't think I completely knew this at the time, but I kind of had what i needed from there where i could mm. point myself in the right direction i knew how to read i knew how to think about craft and how to how to figure out ways to develop my craft mm. on my own by reading carefully and by thinking about intent and and that kind of thing
0: yeah okay i appreciate that so like you know getting into like the singer distance which is which came out what october last year uh yeah october and obviously pardon the pun there's a lot of distance between you know college <laughs> and then like yeah. who are some of the the, the <laughs> thank you for that pity laugh um who are some of the uh, the writers or writing that really kind of shaped this book like you know i forget who i was, just, I was reading about somebody else today who i think it's um Kwong who wrote yellow face oh yeah rf Kwong yeah rf Kwong right and she was talking about how she's just trying to do something totally different you know, there was Babel, I haven't read any of her stuff, but her great things cannot wait, you know, and the yellow face was, you know, it's been a, another blockbuster and she's talking about the third one's just going to be totally, you know, so like my long way of getting at, like, did you, like, have you been reading and writing all like, I don't know. I I guess I want to ask you too. I mean, is this speculative fiction? It's not quite, you know, is this something like, Hey, I just, I wrote about this. This is not what I always write about. Or it's like, this is what I've really settled on because I've read, you know Matt Bell who gives you a great blurb and you know th- these kind of folks I don't know if that makes sense
1: yeah no it, it absolutely does and it's a good question because I'm I am a bit envious of writers I think who like just have a thing and mm-hmm. do that thing perfectly and everything they write is pointing in that direction sure. I've always been pretty like omnivorous and wide-ranging yeah. in a way sometimes I worry means like okay my writing doesn't have as much of a strong identity as some of those other writers um but i I just kind of find my writing interests lie in a lot of various directions and so Mm -hmm. i i never really thought of myself as a sci-fi writer before Mm -hmm. i had this like book out on the sci-fi shelves of bookstores Mm -hmm. um but i have for a while my processes felt felt very Premise driven, where like okay. it kind of it, it starts at the idea stage, and then I'm feeling out what characters resonate with that idea, what mm-hmm. setting resonates with that idea, and kind of how the plot's going to work within that. And so a lot of times, you know, if you're looking for strong ideas, a lot of times that leads, I think, a little bit toward the speculative um, or to something that's kind of high concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that was the case here. Um and it branched off. The inspiration came from a non-speculative book. Uh this is a book Equilateral by Ken Calfus. I'm not sure if yeah, you know this one. I don't know. Um but it's it's about a astronomer around the 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 turn of the twentieth century, the beginning of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. Um carving out a giant equilateral triangle to set on fire to try and talk to Mars. Uh, and that one's not uh, speculative exactly because there are no Martians to answer back. Sure. Um, but it's this kind of really, really interesting idea. And that caught me. And then the, mm. the speculative what if branched off of that. And yeah. so I just kind of had to head in, in that direction.
0: Yeah. Who who are some of the writers of, you know, of today who are really, I mean, cause you're really, you're so good at world building. I mean, it's, in the same way, you know, like, like a magical realism or something you read and it's like, you know, the old man with enormous wings and you're whatever, a paragraph in, you're like, okay, cool. The guy's got wings, like yeah. next, <laughs> you know, like, you know, as a compliment, like, I mean, you, you made, you know, things that are science fiction. You made them like, okay, cool, palatable for sure. And like understandable for the layman and all that. But I guess, you know, so the world building is so extensive and so powerful. Who are some of those that you really like, man, she can, can really do, build a world.
1: Thank you, uh, you mentioned R.F. Huang uh, a minute ago and, and I thought um, Babel was really interesting in that way. I read that earlier uh-huh. this year. Um, Erica Swyler, um, I okay. think she's she's done a book that's kind of like um, like um, traveling circus and tarot mysticism and sort of uh, curses. It's also like this one, It it's got kind of an allegorical literary mm-hmm. feel mixed with that. And then her second book was also also had that kind of allegorical sort of feel like from other stars, but in a, in a sci-fi direction. Mm. Um, So she's, she's brilliant at that. And she's a favorite of mine. And um, for this book, one of the things that kind of unlocked novel writing for me, which I was really struggling with was getting into Kazuo Ishiguro Ah. Uh, and the way his premises he tends to work with a a world that's tilted just a little, right? Like where it's, it's very much recognizable as our world with this one change mm. that, you know, usually it's speculative in some way. like mm-hmm. clones in and uh, never let me go um, or like a AI, AI robots, AI robot friends in Clara and the sun mm. or kind of a, a fantasy setting, but one that has that allegorical sort of feel in the very giant. And and I always like the way that it's, it's kind of that bit of small world building where it's not building a, a world from the ground up, yeah. But it's this like funhouse mirror that that reveals things about the world by distorting them in a way.
0: That makes sense. Yeah, just slightly off, slightly off a little bit. It's our world, but it's our world minus or our world plus. I guess right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, cool. That makes a lot of sense. My question is about balancing the plot and the science. I I was thinking of one of those big one of the big revelations towards the end, which I'm not going to give away, but it was almost, for me it was almost like a. and have you ever read Animal Farm? Yeah. When when you know, sorry if I'm spoiling the plot for anybody here. You know, the book's only what 70 years old or whatever, but um well, you know when Napoleon gets up and walks on two legs, I, I remember almost literally being like and I had that same sort of gasp at that at that revelation towards the end. Um, you know, on, on the trip with, with, with father and daughter. And I was like, man, so, you know, the plot is so interesting, the way that everything, um, you know, comes back together in the end, etc. The plot just really keeps it going. But it's also like, man, cool science and the Martians and the trip and, you know, academia. So I wonder about how much, I guess, research you had to do even. I guess maybe if you can start off by just giving us a little bit of a, a summary, especially of like, I guess, that first trip like when yeah it starts off yeah
1: yeah and it's kind of it's it's a little bit weird i found to summarize because you have to almost start with the backstory.
0: sure
1: um, and so the the back is that it's based off some some real scientific history where um, an italian astronomer saw channels on mars through his telescope in like the late 1800s mm-hmm. telescopes were not very very powerful yeah. then and couldn't see mars that well um, and so he he wrote about these canali that he found channels and it got mistranslated into English as canals. Mm-hmm. And then other astronomers started looking for and seeing canals, and many thought that they were man, you know, not man-made, but but uh, you know, intelligently designed canals that were signs of civilization. So uh, not every astronomer thought that. It was I would from what I've read, I think it was more than a fringe theory but Mm. not the majority theory yeah Um, and um and so there was this whole you know idea for 20 or 30 years that mars could be inhabited and that's when you start seeing war of the worlds come out Mm. and other martian stuff in pop culture and um and there were suggestions of doing things like like Answering that research question by pointing a bunch of gigantic mirrors at Mars and trying to mm-hmm. signal them, um, so there's that history. And then Ken Kalfas was kind of exploring that history in Equilateral, mm. and um, and the twist that I put on it is I, I thought, you know, what if there was a civilization on Mars and they were there to answer back to this sort of huge installation that Earth put up. And I thought the interesting take on that is what if they just don't care that much about, uh. about people like humans. Um, and, you know, I come out of a literary short fiction writing background. So I'm always looking for the like saddest possible things. Right. I'm like the loneliest thing would be having a civilization next door to us that just doesn't care about us. and just isn't,
0: uh-huh. isn't
1: interested. Um, and so that felt like the, the thematic axis that, Okay. that I wanted to work with. And I, I had that idea for a long time. Um, and it wasn't until the foreground story clicked into place like seven years later yeah. that I started writing it. Um, so the the main action of, of this book takes place after it's been 30 years since people have been able to solve the Martian math proof. The, the mm-hmm. communication between being, between Earth and Mars is all mathematics. They put up a, a proof or a test of some kind. And we try and answer it. And if we do, we get a new problem. Uh, But the problems get harder and harder. And Einstein solves the last one in 1932 or 33. I'd have to have to check the the pages to be sure. And then for 30 years, no one can solve a problem. And we don't hear from Mars and the world gets disaffected about Mm -hmm. this idea of Mars communication. And then the, the foreground story is 1960, a young grad student named crystal singer cracks the problem or at least she she thinks she has and so her boyfriend rick and a few of their friends go on a cross country journey to like paint this gigantic mars proof in the desert to try and and signal mars and put her theory to the test
0: appreciate that so there's the what five like you know five overall rick i was i saw crystal singer with the last name and i was like for some reason i was thinking too much of the book that it was rick singer I was like, is he going to grow up to be the guy? He was the guy who was like the, uh, who like started the scandal for like the college recruiting. You know what I'm talking
1: about? Oh, really? Yeah, so I was didn't... like,
0: I was like, is he going to grow up to be that guy or? You know, no,
1: I didn't. I didn't know that though. I found out later after the book was already going to print that there's a Mercedes Lackey book. Called Crystal Singer, like a oh, fantasy book. Oh, wow. But that's a cool little bit of, of trivia. I don't yeah. know. Maybe I would have changed it if I'd seen it before that, but I, I'm yeah. kind of happy w- with the coincidence. Yeah.
0: speculative part and just about it being instead of 1960 like and just ideas of optimism i mean there's a lot of pessimism in the book for sure you mentioned some of it just about like you know loneliness and, and and distance and lack of connection but it the fact that like women are in pretty high positions that she's you know 1960s she's a a, a a a female who's you know her work is propped up and all that is that like kind of the kind of nonchalantness of it is, pretty, is so cool. Like, is there something to that where it's just like, you know what? Yeah. That's that's the world that, that, that this book that she can get these opportunities because she's ridiculously smart. It was it was like a kind of like a political statement? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I didn't want it to be highly political, but uh-huh. when I when I was thinking about, you know, who the characters were gonna be when I first started writing it, I I knew immediately it should not be a um, you know a brilliant man
0: right a male solving phenom.
1: this and right. then the 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 girlfriend just mm. there to support him because mm. that's you know it feels stodgy and dated and yeah, yeah. you know uh, like a male self congratulatory thing um, and it felt much more interesting to say okay here's this um, this genius woman in a time where you know there were not many women in you know allowed in the fields of mathematics or encouraged into the field of mathematics or or other fields like that um and so it it felt good it felt more interesting it felt like it gave it you know a little even more of an underdog characteristic because mm-hmm. you know people people are not in 1960 are not going to readily accept the idea that a woman is the smartest mathematician in the world. But if she solves this Martian math proof, then it's unequivocally true. And there's not really
0: any arguing it. Hmm. Towards, towards the end of the book. And this, this is, this is speaking about something else, but I think it fits like crystal and Rick's relationship. He's thinking about asking her to marry him. They're um, enamored of each other. And we'll talk about kind of maybe, maybe an unequal relationship in some ways but there's there's clearly love there's clearly concern there's clearly affection you know so it's kind of like the the other field the other three are kind of like eh sometimes when they're you know getting uh kind of romantic you know pda if you will but (laughs) um but the the line from the book which is so good just outside of the context but within the context even better is quote some feelings exceed our recording capacity I wonder about like this, this relationship and they're so in love and he just loves Rick loves watching crystal just think and be curious and, you know, just look off into the distance and they have philosophical and scientific and mathematical conversations is some of it about just is some of this books staying power, some of the books allegory about like kind of like the Romeo and Juliet idea of just like this fiery love when you're young you know, kind of like a Foo Fighters "Everlong." Like, can this ever last? Can it be like this forever?
1: Yeah. Well, and I knew it was kind of it was in this unstable state in the beginning, mm-hmm. where where they are like passionately in love with each other, but also Rick is maybe more passionately in love with Crystal than than mm-hmm. she is with him because she's got this big other focus on yeah. Mars, and he's focused only on her. Mm-hmm. Um And so I I knew that that early theme going on that was kind of behind the whole, my whole interest in the idea was this idea of closeness and distance, like a civilization on Mars being so close, mm-hmm. but then being like emotionally distant basically. And so I wanted to set up a scenario where we could, could do that and start with that intense closeness mm-hmm. and then move things to a greater distance and see how it plays out.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. You talk about like unstable uh, the lack of stability. There's that great garbage analogy. And I don't I don't mean the analogy is garbage. I mean it's about garbage. <laughs> I, I forget exactly who gave it, but just the idea of it might have been uh it was Carl
1: Singer's uh yeah. Carl Crystal's, Crystal Crystal Daniel.
0: Right. Um why do you could maybe talk about that a little bit how all that connects to their relationship, like about you know, kind of being a cheerleader for one or the other and just the garbage analogy.
1: Yeah, I mean it was um so the analogy is Rick Rick is asking. Uh, Crystal's dad for his blessing because he's planning to propose, mm-hmm. um, and at first he kind of says says no, he's unenthusiastic about it. Who's going to measure up to her? And Rick says mm-hmm. he doesn't plan to, um, but he does plan to like take care of her. And that's mm-hmm. when Carl shifts and he says like, um, you know, a a marriage is a you know about figuring out who's going to take out the trash. Both people can take out the trash. Or only one person can take out the trash, but it doesn't work if both people don't take out the trash. Mm. And and I forget what Rick's exact response is, but I think he says like he can manage that. And that's yeah. something that yeah. I I like about Rick is that he's he's pretty ready to just be be the support and mm. kind of give Crystal what he needs because he sees something great in her, and he doesn't want to surpass that. He doesn't want to bring it down. Yeah. He just wants to, um, you know, do do what it takes to be with her and to keep her going.
0: Yeah, so, you know, so again, they're from MIT and, you know, even amongst these huge, huge brains, you know, is above and beyond in so many ways. You talked about a little bit, maybe the, the nonfiction part of it. The fiction part of is what, when Mars is in opposition, am I saying that right? Yeah. So when Mars is in opposition to the Earth, you know, it comes up not that you know not that often. There, there are these me, these messages that are dropped, you know, and there are these responses. Was it the first one where the four parallel lines were shown in response by by on Mars? Or? Yeah, that was the yeah. first
1: response. The uh, yeah in in the early draft and mm-hmm. when I first started drafting, Earth actually sent an equilateral triangle like ah. they did in the Kent Kalpas ah. book because I was I was thinking like oh that's a a cool nod to the book that inspired it, ah. and then I thought about it more and then I thought. That's copyright infringement.
0: <laughs> you, know, um, you do mention intellectual property in the book, right? So yeah. maybe it can be a sue that suing there. Yeah, um, but I've I've talked with
1: Ken. Uh, my the nice. publisher put me in in touch with him, and he's he was really great and
0: supportive. Oh man, I love that the community of of writers and creatives. That's so cool. Rick being like the planner again. He's not some dumb. You know, he he knows his stuff, but he's also he's the one who put together all the trucks and all the materials for them to do their own message in Arizona, close to the previous one. And so, you know, they definitely under the cover of night and secretive. And they, you know, they get it done with the help of those five. And it seems like, like you talk about the closeness is there, like, no, it's not easy work. And, you know, there are some disagreements and such, but it's like, it's a beautiful moment. They take pictures, they send them into the newspapers, they get their more than their 15 minutes of fame. But it's kind of like, sorry to keep going back to that, but that, that Everlong thing is like, Things were as good as they can get maybe, you know, at this point at the age of what, 23, 24 kind of thing. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about like the, not the backlash, but just like fame. Fame hits them after they've shown this message, they got a reply and they're just like, you know, talk about popular science in the days when they were like public intellectuals, right? Yeah, They're They're all over the news and that kind of thing. I wonder about how the five of them, especially Crystal, dealt with that fame.
1: Yeah, well, I think you kind of hit upon what needed to happen with the book when you said this was the best it could could possibly be. You know, they they succeeded in putting their message down. They succeeded in getting a response, and crystals that means crystals proof was correct, and it's this great you know, once in a lifetime victory. Sorry
0: to interrupt you because I didn't, I didn't put it, I didn't really state it and I'm thinking you did So you say proof as in like a mathematical proof. Yeah, mathematical proof. Thank you. Sorry, I didn't mention that before. That was her, it was her idea. Go ahead, I'm sorry.
1: You know, things can't really get better than that. They can only go go downhill in some ways and, and you know, maybe in real life they don't necessarily have to, but especially book wise, you know, that's the time where there needs to be a big reversal and everything goes yeah. from this moment of triumph to, you know, thing, things going wrong. Otherwise, otherwise, the book's done there on page 75 mm-hmm. or whatever.
0: <laughs> the way that Crystal deals with uh, the fame, I mean, she becomes pretty much a recluse, right?
1: Yeah, she not not immediately, but over time, she mm. she gets really focused on the next problem that um, that Mars puts up and that becomes the new quest and the new obsession. And that's and not necessarily in healthy ways for her and certainly mm. not for Rick, who kind of I think Rick wanted to, you know, clear the first proof. And then that's out of the way of sure. the most important thing to him, which is their relationship.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I wonder if you can play armchair psychologist a little bit more so than that, because you wrote the book and these characters, like, I guess maybe what, you know, so am I correct that Crystal's mom had walked out on the family?
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's not mentioned too much in there, but, um, but there's a reference or two to the idea that um, her, her family immigrated from, from Europe in the lead up to world war II. Mm -hmm. And then her mom moved back sometime i think at the early 1950s and mm-hmm. just kind of left the family
0: and her father's a character he's you know he's he's a scientist or mathematician
1: yeah uh he's a statistician
0: statistician know. right you know he's a character he's the one that I, I know so well like uh a father or a grandfather that just can't wait to talk to younger people i guess not yeah. younger people just everyone right he just loves to talk to them, and he seems to be a really you know good spirited guy And they get along but is it is it a is it a product of like them being too similar that that kind of rubs her the wrong way at times where she can't spend too much time around them
1: i think that's an aspect of it and he can't he can't take anything too seriously like he's a performer and so he needs to kind of control things and get a laugh out of people Mm -hmm. Uh, and he kind of his voice the voice for carl started out that way because in the the early drafts, he was kind of providing some of the narration of the history of Martian, ah. um, of the the Martian communication, because I you know Rick is is so serious and kind of yes. so so love struck and so focused that I wanted some levity to balance that out and some mm. humor in it. And it didn't work out to keep him narrating that with the, the way the structure was set up. But it was it was fun to keep as a character and to work yeah. in and to let that chafe against Crystal. I mean, I think a uh. lot of people in their twenties get easily bothered by their parents, and especially if the parent is a big personality, then um then that can can kind of exacerbate that.
0: So one of the things that draws Crystal and Rick together or further apart or, or maybe subtle, but you know, is that Rick definitely has trouble with his father. His father is a cynic. Um, You know, one of the things that that they both shared again, this is crystal and Rick is this, this love or fascination with Lucas holiday, right? He's this um, seem, you know, he's this kind of, again, I keep using, you know, popular science. He was the one who would, he kind of translated science for the layman for lay people. He'd be on the radio or TV. He had the performance aspect to it. I think, you know, yeah. some of the scientists out there, the stereotype is you know they're maybe not able to convey the meaning so well. Um, But he ends up being basically just being a charlatan for the money.
1: Somewhat, I don't. That's he, not because right? yeah, he kind of knew his stuff, though, right? right. Yeah, 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 like I mean, he he wasn't a famous scientist. He he was a a professor of science, and so he knew his stuff. But he wasn't like the standout genius who's likely to solve this right. this almost unsolvable math problem but um but yeah his brilliance is in the communication mm-hmm. aspect of it and i think and in inspiring people about the questions and about science um so he's really he's heavily based on carl sagan except i think uh-huh. like a low-rent carl sagan um, yeah. <laughs> who's who's got kind of an aspect of the charlatan about him but i okay. think he's I think he's a charlatan and a true believer at the same time.
0: Yeah. 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 That's a good yeah. way to put it for sure. Yeah. He's not, he's not a one dimensional just, you know, trying to do it for the bag. Yeah. I don't running. think
1: he's, he's not a, a straight out con man. No. He, he bought into his own myth a little much.
0: Huh. But, but so I kind of wonder, so I wonder about the connection between Rick and his father, like, Some seem to be broken. Like there was the Zeno, am I saying that name right? Zeno? I think so. Yeah. yeah, Zeno paradox, right. Of like, it's a classic one about, you know, okay, if I'm half a field away from you and then that's in half of that is one fourth and, you know, and on and on and on, it's this paradox of it never really stops. Right. I'm, I'm obviously not saying it in a complex way, but my whole, my long winded question is like, was it, did it become like a competition between father and son where was kind of finally able to like beat his dad on the basketball court so to speak he was yeah, able I to think, kind of be an intellectual you know su- superior or or, or or match what was yeah, it, like, i think,
1: kinda... i think it's a moment like that or at least of of young rick trying to be an intellectual match mm-hmm. and like outwit his dad and i to me it felt like a rift that was waiting to happen and just needed mm-hmm. the catalyst for that yeah. to happen um and i knew i kind of knew going into part two, my intent was to start expanding the type of emotional distance that I wanted the book to explore. You know, I didn't want it to be just distance in this romantic relationship. Mm. And so I thought, let me explore Rick's relationship with his family too. And um, I think it happens a lot with fathers and sons where there's, um, there becomes this distance that there's almost no reason for or an antagonism mm. that that's not based in too much um yeah i was talking about steve yarbo's classes earlier and i was in an essay uh a, like a non-fiction workshop with him as an undergrad and there was a, a guy there from the wrestling team and he was writing an essay about um about all this tension and all these arguments between him and his dad when he was going through his very successful high school wrestling career mm. um and steve asked the class is like, do you think that this, all these arguments are really about wrestling or do you think there's something else behind it? And everyone's like, there's something else behind it. There's mm-hmm. got to be this issue or that issue. And then Steve talked about it. He's like, no, this can absolutely mm-hmm. be the thing, this thing that is the point of purpose for the the sports driven dad mm-hmm. and the kid who is having the career themselves like that, that sort of thing can absolutely lead to that mm-hmm. tension. I was thinking of of that a little bit and the idea that like, it can just be this thing where, where sons and their fathers just stop getting along for, mm. for very little reason. Um, and so I wanted to explore that phenomenon and I liked it better with the idea that there wasn't a big important reason that, shouldn't have been able to be solved but yeah. why is this rift there yeah. and what what is rick going to do with it
0: yeah i really like how you play with that it wasn't it wasn't didactic it wasn't like a teaching moment or a moralistic it was like you said you kept it subtle and you kept it a little bit unknown right and then you know say, of course you talk about distance and there's there's I, I love that image of like there's actually a physical distance where rick and his mom would be listening listening or watching to to holiday's show Right. And she would kind of like smile like through the open door and he would kind of pretend like he didn't like it. But he just loved the fact that they were actually close, even though they weren't in the same room. There's something so cool about them listening to the same show but in different rooms and in different own different ways.
1: Yeah. He's a teenager then. He's too proud to yes. be like, I love my mom, you know. But right. he 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 can't display it, but he still feels it. And I think that kind of it suggests that he feels that way with his dad even though they're more actively Mm -hmm. antagonistic to each other like he he doesn't want it to be that way but he doesn't know his way out of it
0: yeah so like you're talking about there's you know part two there's three parts overall and you know part two as part two goes on rick is older it's maybe what eight or nine years after the initial trip was it 1971
1: yeah, and by part three, I think it's nineteen
0: seventy two. Yeah, and then the I nineteen
1: seventy three is the start of the the trip. So, somewhere in there,
0: right. So you know he's um, Rick is hasn't really moved on. He, you know, there's they're the letters that become much less common, but they're letters between him and Crystal. You know, she doesn't let him know where she lives. He even does a couple of try. You know, tries to visit her places. He thinks where she is, and he's unsuccessful and he you know he becomes a a professor at UC Davis go aggies right Yeah, go aggies yeah yeah and living in his in his family's old place you know his parents had had passed away um uh, you know way back not way back but long enough time you talk about this whole idea of like what is it if the if the father dies first the mother usually lives for a long time or is it vice versa
1: yeah i think that that's what i said there's farmhouse law if the father right, dies first law. or the, the husband dies first the wife will live another 30 years that's it if the wife dies first the husband's gone within a year
0: and the latter is what happened right so yeah. you know there's even this situation where there's angie who's a little bit older than him but you know really good person and a professor as well and they they have a connection and she she wants more and he's just not able to do it and yeah. she I mean, she's angry as one would be but she's not She's more like, you know, hey, you you got to move on. I can tell, it's you know, you're closed up and yeah. never say never. But no, for now, I, I know you, you just can't do it.
1: I've seen some Goodreads reviews where people say they're, they're Team Angie or, or say justice <laughs> for Angie. And, and I, I always appreciate that because I kind of feel that way, too. I mean, I feel like that would probably be the smarter decision for Rick at that point in his life is mm-hmm. to just say, like, here's this good thing that's here yeah. in front of in front of him. He should take it. Um, but I think that's why I kind of like that moment. Is because it, it's because it—it's hard to say whether that's the right choice.
0: Well, I'm, I'm paraphrasing J here. I think what is it? Not not Mr. Not Mrs. Right, but Mrs. Right now. You know, might have worked for him. Distance with these letters. Do you do you feel like he? I mean, you know he becomes a solid professor at a good university. Um, you know, but he's not. You know, writing writing these these articles that well maybe he is but not as much that like you know only other people are reading like only other scientists or mathematicians are reading these journals he's not stephen hawking you know does he kind of is it this whole kind of idea of like he kind of settles like if he can't have the best which would be her and the life that came with that then he's kind of just gonna not necessarily challenge himself and live kind of comfortable ish
1: yeah i think so that he just he he just sets himself on getting by because there's one purpose in his one drive has been crystal and as that becomes incle- increasingly out of reach he he becomes a little more apathetic you know and he, uh-huh. he doesn't necessarily acknowledge it but he's probably on the I don't know if I call him depressed but he becomes more a little more closed up maybe a little yeah. a little bitter in some ways yeah. um, and and a lot less idealistic than he was in mm-hmm. part one yeah um, and he's kind of feeling like his. It, it gets talked about a little more in part three than in part two, but the the second Mars equation isn't about distance; it's about entropy. Mm. And I think that's his feeling of the his feeling in part two is his life is undergoing entropy, and all the structure and energy and interest it had is just kind of falling apart and dissipating.
0: So the idea of entropy, right? That obviously Crystal is very interested in, as is rick and so many scientists mathematicians even philosophers right yeah. is basically right is that the world is going to the sun's going to like burn burn out no. right? there's yeah, no, but there's no going backwards there's there's only one end
1: yeah but all energy kind of eventually progresses to its most unorganized form and mm-hmm. basically everything just kind of dies out eventually so it's kind of the it it's the sad depressing philosophical uh topic of science
0: quite possibly the most depressing possible
1: yeah the heat death
0: of the universe. <laughs> <laughs> the heat death of the universe. So uh, you know, again, um, I'm, I'm kind of we're kind of getting to the point of the plot now, where I'm like, all right, I'm gonna kind of leave it alone for sake of you know, spoilers and such. Yeah. But just the, like, what she's going through in those years. Does she? I, I, you as a wrestler, you know, I know none of, neither you or I were Kobe Bryant or, you know, insert star wrestler here. Yeah, yeah. You know, but just this idea of like just being the top of the top, cream of the cream. Creme de la Creme, right? Just like being obsessed with being the greatest. I think of Jordan, you know. Yeah. Jordan and Kobe, like they absolutely obsessed with it. LeBron, he spends, you know, a million dollars a year on recovery and that kind of thing. Is it is is there a special loneliness at the top? Is that part of, of hers? Just that she is she can't turn turn her brain off. She's so, so, so brilliant that that obsession is all that she can do, but it's definitely injurious to her to her life to her mental well-being.
1: I think so. Yeah, I think it's different approaching the second question cuz in the, you know, the first the first question, the first proof, she's just so curious about it. She wants to figure it out. Yeah. And I think she feels that she solved the first proof because she wanted to. And I think she's working on the second proof because mm-hmm. she has to. She's the one. She has to do it again. Mm-hmm. And so so yeah, I think there's the pressure more than the enjoyment on the mm-hmm. second one and also you know the the person who's the person to do the first one isn't necessarily the person to do the second one but that's not oh. an idea that that i think she could cope with Um uh, and so so yeah i think it's much different and i think it's probably something a lot of you know writers can relate to is the i was gonna book ask i've <laughs> been trying ask. to to write write next books and so far it hasn't been been going great it's been kind of fun to struggle um okay. but but yeah i mean. It, you write the first book and get a lot there. And there's, there's, you know, a lot of sense of accomplishment. And then you write down to, to do another one. And it's not like, okay, I, I can just repeat this thing. It's like the whole new ball game.
0: Oh man. What have you done for me lately? Is there something to that? This, this idea of like, you know, I, it, whether it's an internal pressure again, you can talk about yourself or Crystal or just in general, but like, is there an internal pressure or, or is it the external pressure saying kind of like, what have you done for me lately? What's next? Oh yeah. You know um, what I mean?
1: There, there's some of both. I mean, there's no external pressure. I haven't, you know, my, my agent hasn't been bullying me or anything like okay. that, uh, but, but are you sure blink it, twice? If... Okay. Okay. In uh. internal pressure. Um, yeah. I feel like, okay, it's time to settle down and write this next one. I was really busy for a lot of this year promoing the book and I've got, got a couple of kids in elementary school and that's been a lot of work. Hmm. Um, but now I feel like, okay, it, it's time. And it, it's been an interesting shift because I felt like, you know, while I was promoing this book, I felt like, okay, I've, I've done this. I, I can do this again. Like, like, I can write another book. No problem. I had ideas, ideas that I like. And then you sit down to write the ideas and like getting the actual scenes out there is not, not mm-hmm. easy the way you anticipate it being. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's a better feeling. Like, to to be sitting and working and thinking can i do this then i can do this like Mm. it's or or like maybe i maybe i can't do this it ignites kind of uh i think it ignites that that underdog feeling and that feeling of like okay i'm i'm doing this alone in the cave people aren't you know most people aren't really like holding their breath for me or anything it's just Mm. something that i've got to do on my own, me and the computer, if yeah. it's going to happen. And, and that's kind of a, a good feeling, even when the individual writing days
0: are frustrating. Hmm. Well, I mean, the praise is, you know, heaping praise from, you know, NPR books called it entrancing in the Wall Street Journal, a novel of twin obsessions they wrote. The Millions, which we love, they, is quote, the best kind of literary sci-fi, the kind of novel that makes the reader appreciate the mystery and beauty of our little infinite universe. So some well-deserved, some great praise um you know npr books did did they cover it on like an audio segment or was it written or
1: no it just showed up in the like the end of year yes it, that's it should right. be called the book concierge concierge and i don't think it mm. is anymore mm. um, i think it's just called like books we love and it showed up there uh-huh. and um and that was a, a really cool surprise and oh, yeah. one, of, one of the kind of things i i didn't expect at all from mm. having the book out is that it helped me reconnect with some people from my past. Like Ah. uh, one of my like elementary school friends, mom saw it on, on the NPR thing. Mm -hmm. And she told her son who I hadn't talked to and, you know, probably since like sophomore year of high school. Mm. uh, And so he like sent me a text like, Hey, I I heard about your book. Are you famous now? Nice. Uh, and I said no, not really. <laughs> but but then we started like um, like texting each other, and I went up and, and took my kids to meet his kids earlier in the year. Cool. So so that sort of thing has been cool, and yeah. and you know it happens when something that's kind of a major press outlet picks up your book and, right. and mentions it. That's a, uh, that's uh, a so cool. Fun result, yeah. Yeah.
0: So with with leaving the, the the literal ending alone, but like is you know, there, I mean, we talk about entropy, like that is, that is dark <laughs> literally yeah. figurative you know, that's just, that's so dark, this idea that like, things are always getting worse basically. Right. Things, you know, that like the, not the default mode, but yeah, the, you just, you know, the end is near, if the end is not near, the end is going to happen. And ideas of distance, right. And ideas of loneliness, you know, what if they don't care on Mars? What if there yeah. is intelligent life, but, and, eh. and, you know, this idea that obviously crystal is, is lonely in so many ways um, as is Rick, and you know, it's a human condition. Is there like, I mean, is it, is it a pessimistic idea? Is it is it optimistic as well? Just the idea that there that there is that need for a connection, there is that desire for a connection that 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 could be seen as a positive.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I this book came out surprisingly hopeful, I'd say, given given how I usually write. You know, other short stories I write before this are usually like aimed toward the most depressing ending possible like i like you know you you watch black mirror and you watch an episode and it leaves you feeling like the world is ugly like that, that was like <laughs> the usual <laughs> short story ending i'd be going for um and i didn't know i like i wasn't necessarily trying to aim for that but that felt like the place yeah. i knew how to go and in mm. a short story you've got space for like kind of one major reversal that's going to happen at the end is the kind mm. thing yeah um, but something a novel length requires more shifts than that and so it's like okay you need to to work upward and then work downward and then work upward you need these patterns of of success and failure not to be too schematic about it um, but you you need some ups and downs and i think that gives you more potential to Mm -hmm. to land on an up note but also to kind of wrestle with what the ups and downs mean and what they average out to. And there's a, Mm. a scene in the book where, you know, Rick and another character are kind of trying to come to terms with what it means that Crystal has gone from their lives Mm -hmm. and, and accept that there are some parts of that that they can't control. And Mm -hmm. um, all they can kind of control is, is how they react to that, which sounds kind of new agey and like, Mm -hmm. All I control is my is my response (laughs) to things. Um, But I think it was kind of interesting for me to to cope with that question and say, you know, what what does it mean and how should Rick be thinking about this? Because the Mm -hmm. way he's been dealing with it for for 12 years has not been doing him any good.
0: Yeah, definitely. Definitely put you on the spot but like what would be maybe like one of the darkest endings of one of your short stories we should check out you talk about some real dark ones like what's one that comes to mind
1: <laughs> um you know there's one about a. Uh, i'll spoil it a little because i don't think anyone's really <laughs> like like on the edge of their seat for my seven-year-old short stories but there's wow. one that about a like a plant geneticist who's working for a monsanto-like okay. corporation that buys the world's last seed bank and plans to destroy it mm. um and he's like talking with the reporter, trying to get the word out um, and trying to do something to put a stop to it. Um, and and you kind of get this feeling, okay, like maybe he's gonna be able to have an impact. And then he, by the end of the story, he uh, realizes that he he, the system is too big. He can't have an effect on it. He uh, blows himself up. <laughs> Okay. Okay. With with a a bomb, he was going to plan. He was thinking about using to to do something at the facility to stop to save the seed bank. Uh, Um, And then the last lines of the story, it shifts into him like telling a parable of of the ark story, the biblical ark story. Uh, But but he changes the ending to the ark caught fire, the ark sank. So
0: God damn, I'm sorry (laughs) to ask. I'm sorry to ask. Oh, yeah,
1: it's pretty. it's pretty it's quite a downer of an ending but but i do yeah. love to take a swing for that
0: to me there's always something about like the the narrator's voice like in juxtaposition or in this case not with like the final ending that sounds like in this case makes it even more depressing like yeah. wow <laughs> yeah i'm sorry no it sounds cool though <laughs> <laughs> you're talking about the uh like schematics and like you know the shifts and you know at this point in the story this should happen do you have any screenwriting background or any designs on getting into screenwriting
1: I, I don't have a screenwriting background, but it's something that I've, you know, I've read some books on, some craft books on. Um, not, I guess I, I might've started before I wrote this. I'm not sure, mm. um, but I've just read a couple. Um, and I find screenwriting has a much more robust, like vocabulary and set of concepts for mm. what it's doing story-wise and plot-wise. Um, and that fiction writers are tend to be very wary of that. And I think mm. with some good reason, I don't think usually you want a novel to be as, as planned out as a screenplay and you don't want yeah. it to stick to some of the screenplay templates, the not okay, that all, yeah. not that all screenplays should follow that template. Um, yeah, but it does give you a sense, you know, it, I think it helps understand like, okay, here are some of the ebbs and flows of a story and things mm-hmm. that a lot of stories, including you know, including long form fiction tend to do the ups and downs, the the big yeah. reversals near the end, complications. Um, and that can be, a, a lot of writers are very wary of plot in general, which I think, mm-hmm. and I, I, I can really enjoy a plotless book, but I also think that that idea of working with story events has a lot of potential to it. And it's not, I, I take issue when people talk about that like an anti-art, thing Mm -hmm. i was talking about kazuo ishiguro Ishiguro, and he um it's not so proper plotting but he is he's a he's a really good sentence writer but a lot of his prose is like it's not super elegant super lyrical like doing the job when he needs to Mm -hmm. um and you know the characters are good and there's depth to him but a lot of the power there comes from the plot and the way he builds up these not super complicated plots but these characters you know hopes and their plans and then he subverts those things um and it's this really beautiful way of like speaking the language of of story and and shifting around where you think things are going to go and i think there's there's a great artistic power to that
0: You can say as little or as much as you want about any any upcoming prod projects and I'd love to you know shout out social media um you know any any recommendations about where to buy the book
1: I'm I'm kind of promiscuous with projects mm-hmm. I have to wait and wait for one to really like grab hold of me so I've been I keep on shifting around between kind of three main projects that I think I'm gonna write mm-hmm. uh, so I, sh- I shouldn't talk too much because I've only got like a chapter of each and, mm. and any one of them could be the next one or could end up in the scrap pile. I don't know. Mm. Um, so hopefully, hopefully this next year, once the kids are back in school, I can do some heavy drafting yeah. and, and get something done. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll have to talk more about that once I, once I know a little more about how my plans are
0: going to work out. The Nelly um, Furtado of writing <laughs> promiscuous with projects. I like that phrase.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, And it was always kind of that way with short stories too. Like I start one and then one feels like it's got Mm. more of that right energy and I know where to go with it. Yeah. That sort of thing. Uh, As far as the book goes, uh, you know, it should be available. Um, I I don't know if it's on, on shelves everywhere as, you know, as much as it was when it was in the first six months. Um, But I've, I've, you know, heard people are still seeing it in Barnes and Noble, certain Indies I know are still stocking it. Mm. Um, It can be requested anywhere. Uh, naturally the the best place to buy it is an indie bookstore best place is really any place that's not amazon mm. um bookshop dot you know if you need if you have to buy it on amazon you know i I won't shame you or judge you but it's yeah. better for the book ecosystem if you are yeah. buying at more responsible retailers like bookshop.org your yeah. local indie bookshop Barnes and noble you know any, anything like that
0: awesome awesome yeah the you know it's such a balance you have in this book. It could easily, you could easily put off people with the science. It's, you know, it's too much, but you don't dumb it down, but it's understandable. You have the light touch with that tied into the plot too, you know, like the entropy and things like that. And then again, just the plot keeps you going. Um, So it's such a, such a, a beautiful marriage of, of the plot of the science, of the math of philosophy, you know, Zeno and the great thinkers. And there's a reason that, you know, It was published under such a great house with Tin House and NPR and all those people shouted them out. So congrats and and great luck with all your your future writing.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on and for reading it. It's been, been great
0: to talk about it with you. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. pleasure has been to speak with ethan i'm so looking forward to continue to follow his career thank you for listening to episode 193 of the chills at will podcast you can now subscribe using apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review you can also ask for it by name using alexa and find it on stitcher spotify and on amazon music follow me on instagram where i'm at chills at will podcast or on twitter where i'm at chills at will p o one the digit one you can watch this and other episodes on YouTube, the Chills of Will podcast channel. Give it a subscribe while you're there. Sign up now for the Chills of Will podcast Patreon. It can be found at patreon.com backslash Chills at Will podcast Peter Real. Check out the page that describes the benefits of a Patreon membership, including cool swag and bonus episodes. This month's bonus episode is a must listen and that is with Daniel Allen Cox. Thanks in advance for supporting my one man show, my DIY podcast, on my extensive reading, research, editing, and promoting to keep this independent podcast pumping out high quality content. Again, that's patreon.com/chills at will podcast. Peter Real. My last name is R I E H L. The intro song for the Chills Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode is Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 194 with Ruth Madiewski, whose debut novel, All Night Pharmacy, came out on July 11th with Catapult, and has been named a Best or Most Anticipated 2023 Book by the Los Angeles Times, Vogue, and BuzzFeed, among many others. Ruth's debut poetry collection, Emergency Break, was winner of the Rolstad Contemporary Poetry Series. This episode will air on July 25th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these uncertain days bring you texts by writers with mad skills like Ethan Chaitanya, whose work, like Singer Distance, gives you chills at will. (laughs)